Hello, listeners. This is Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. I've got a return guest, Mark Nelson, uh, the man himself. He's come back to talk to us about Nord Stream 2 and what is going on in Europe. So, Mark, welcome. Thanks, Emmett. I'd like to tell your listeners that lots is possible. You may just have to want bad things. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, we'll get into that as we uh, we'll find out about how many bad things are possible with uh, what's going on here. Um, so we're going to talk about Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline that is going from it's a gas pipeline going from Russia into the EU, into Germany specifically, bypassing the Ukraine. Right. Um, and we just found out few hours ago, actually, that the Biden administration is doing some weird semi-sanction thing around it, but also semi-approval thing. We might get into that as we talk more. Uh, but to understand the story at all, we need to kind of go back in time a little bit and start with what Germany has been doing with its economy and with its energy system uh, for the last while here now. And that is the energy window. So I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through what that is and how it's been playing out for them. Sure. So in Germany, just like in the United States, there was a very vigorous, very strong anti-nuclear movement that predated the first major nuclear meltdown. So the, the, the story that everyone says is, well, there was nuclear, we thought it'd be good, but then were some melt, there were some meltdowns, so then we thought it'd be bad. It's not true. There was a very large amount of people I have to say, almost entirely on the political left, that were convinced that nuclear energy was bad because energy was bad, because people were bad, and because corporations, because science, because industry itself were all bad things. That movement twisted the meaning of nuclear meltdowns, like the ones that occurred um, at Three Mile Island, which... I, honestly, I think in a lot of people's heads, if you ask them to rank the relative badness of Chernobyl versus Three Mile Island versus Fukushima, they would struggle a little bit because um, it's all big nuclear meltdowns, right, Emmett? But of course, Three Mile Island, um, the plant stayed in operation. One unit was written off. There was no, effectively no release of radiation to the environment. Um, and the end result of that was, although we did increase regulations on nuclear enough that it helped kill off nuclear building in the United States. We also became so incredibly good at operating that type of reactor that uh, we basically made the most extraordinary and reliable industrial facilities known to man, the modern nuclear plant. The same plants that existed then, just with the post meltdown uh, approaches to safety and operation. So in Germany, they were doing parallel development They got the idea of a pressurized water reactor from the U.S. and then their own engineering might push ahead and develop their own versions of those reactors. Germany actually scaled up their reactors beyond what the U.S. has ever done. So that's quite interesting. And then Germany teamed up with France much, much later to help them build a pan-European reactor. And all of that came crashing down when the wave of popular resentment against nuclear, fear about nuclear spilled over the banks in 2011 with the uh, three meltdowns in Japan. Mm -hmm. But 
Make no mistake, the anti-nuclear movement was strong and was capable of mobilizing tens or even hundreds of thousands of people for demonstrations against nuclear plants before there had ever been uh, a civilian hurt by a commercial nuclear power plant. They were still capable of mobilizing tens of thousands of people to block the development of nuclear plants in Germany. So they got a name for this idea. They, they got intellectual support and encouragement on this from American environmental thinkers, the most famous of which was Amory Lovins, Rocky Mountain Institute founder who went to Germany to promote a soft energy path, mm -hmm. which in that day, because it was all a stealth anti-nuclear program, they defined what was good and bad effectively around what was in a, which was what was anti-nuclear, whether or not you actually said the words anti-nuclear. What that means is Amory Lovins and his movement demonized electricity in general. Anybody who's come into energy quite recently will find that ironic because they know that all the clean energy advocates are saying that actually electricity is amazing. We should have electric cars. We should have electric houses. We should have electricity everywhere. Well, when nuclear was seen as the main way that we were going to grow our electricity supply, they attempted to demonize electricity. The way this worked in Germany is basically saying burning trees is good, burning mm -hmm. coal is good as long as you don't turn it into electricity. Certainly it's better than nuclear and it's better to just not use energy. So Germans kind of picked and chose what they want from this message. They definitely used a ton of energy to get filthy rich, right? Um, totally. And to get yeah. incredibly productive, to concentrate a lot of the world's leading industries within the borders of Germany. Germany has a much more cooperative uh, managerial capitalism where firms sort of agree to divide up a market in a sort of cartel sort of arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, there's a lot of big German car companies, right? Whereas a lot of other countries can only have like one company or maybe two companies that exist in that country to do cars. And it's the national car champion. Germany's got lots because of a traditional approach going all the way back to the start of the second industrial revolution, where not only was it legal to, um, not only was it not illegal to do price fixing and like market dividing and cartel arrangements, cartel arrangements in German industry were enforceable in a court of law. And this is the opposite of the approach taken by the United States, which mm -hmm use the power of the state to break up any company seen as too powerful. Right. right. And this goes, in the market. this argument goes to um, the book scope and scale, right? Which is scale the, and scope scale makes and a, scope. a strong case for this, that Germany yeah. has always had a lot more cooperation in its industrial capitalism, both between firms, between firms and banks and between uh, organized labor and firms. Yeah. So people, uh, the bibliography is in the show notes. As always, that book is out of print, but it's going for cheap. Um, I've got a copy. I've glossed through it. It's amazing. I'm hoping to deep dive it later this year, but fundamental work. Um, I also just want to add one cultural backstory thing here for Emory Lovins. In case you're wondering, why would anyone think electricity is bad? Where are these few, like, why is this demonization happening at all? There's a spate of fears coming out of like, sort of the back to the earth hippie movement or whatever in the mid century that is terrified of population growth and responds to the incredible, like a second industrial boom after world war II and its recovery process and 
mass production and things like that with absolute horror. And it thinks that these people tend to think, Lee Phillips calls them uh, austerity ecologists, that what we have to do is scale back our usage of anything at all. Some of them are even willing to commit openly to population control to make sure that we don't, and I'm sure you've heard this before, sort of founder the raft of earth. In other words, there's only so many spots on this lifeboat of resources and we need to constrain things and keep them natural so that we don't destroy the world. I think that's a great, I think that's a great background. So the Germans took Amory's ideas very seriously and they made a German word, Energiewinde or energy turnaround to describe turning around, going back, in other words, an energy, going back to nature, going back to renewables. But the point of the renewables had nothing to do with carbon. Carbon was added very late as a goal, as we always see in any, in any environmental group that claims to be fighting carbon but doesn't like nuclear. What we'll see is the part about nuclear is much more important, is always the senior concern to fighting uh, for lower emissions. Same thing in Germany. There was an absolute commitment to fighting nuclear. Then when climate change became more important to people much later, they added a sort of stretch goal of emissions reductions. So in Germany, in Germany, the way this played out was the following. The left wing wanted to get out of nuclear. The elites, the very sensible people, the big businesses, the banks, the uh, state utilities, German state utilities, um, all were just kind of going along. Okay, they fought this nuclear plant. The people fought this nuclear plant to the death. We'll just keep going with this one. And so what you have is a patchwork of nuclear plants with typically one or two very large, powerful reactors spread around the industrial heartland. That's that's the way the nuclear system looked um, on the on the eve of Fukushima. Merkel, Angela Merkel had a very, she thought science-based approach to just saying that nuclear is important. People don't like it, but there are lots of things people don't like. What makes Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel is doing the tough things and sometimes the unpopular things and just holding the line on it. Well, my, my view is what happened is that she saw the panic and helplessness in Japan's leaders to deal when they were attempting to deal with from the outsider's perspective was mainly a nuclear event from a Japanese perspective, of course, what 16, 17,000 people died in a massive tsunami, um, two of which drowned at the nuclear plant. Nobody else died at the nuclear plant after. And no one perished from radiation or no one, no one ended up even in the hospital because of radiation burns. It was just a a real mild event in terms Mm. of radiation. Doesn't mean it didn't cause fear doesn't mean it didn't cause panic and it definitely caused fear and panic among the Japanese elite. What I think Angela Merkel was able to do is feel that fear, feel that panic and think how awful it would be for her to feel responsible for such a thing. And I think she just made a game time decision. I'm against nuclear. Now I'm going to pull out of it and we'll do Mm -hmm. whatever it takes. And every other goal, just like the traditional anti-nukes, every other goal, besides getting out of nuclear, becomes secondary. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the senior, senior uh, 
decision. It's the, it's the number one thing that you have to focus on at the yeah. point that you're getting rid of nuclear. Because yeah. of course, their prices have gone up. They've had a severe difficulty getting their emissions down. Um, we'll talk about that. They've had a few years that are going to make them look really good. And depending on what happens the next two years, it may be a golden period of emissions reductions that they're not going to see again. Yeah. So basically what they started to do is they started to phase out nuclear and do massive renewables buildouts, which of course is massive land use because of transmission and just how energy dilute renewables are. You just need more land to do them. I mean, listeners, I'm sure that you have driven past at this point, wind farms, or solar farms or whatever, and seen just how much of the land they consume uh, to provide not very much energy. And so, Emmett, I got to say that one of the first things Germany's had to do is just give up on reforesting. Yeah, There's been a sharp reduction in European reforestation since 2015. Germany wasn't even reforesting by 2015. They were one of the only uh, major European countries that was not reforesting. And in the end, I think Germany's decided that it needs so much land area for bio crops and for biomass. And it needs so much, um, it needs a lot of its existing forest, both working forest and, and natural forest for wind turbines and wind turbine roads that they're just giving up on reforesting. It makes their moral panic about Brazil's deforestation particularly ironic, if not yeah. cynical. Yeah. Because it's that they're, they're concentrating on forests not under their control while stop, stopping the regrowth or actually cutting down forests that are under their direct political control, which kind of reveals the game, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, listeners who have listened to our Meredith Angwin episode, you can go back and check that out, um, who were here when Mark first came on, when we talked about what happened in the Texas blackouts earlier this year, or with Madison Sirwinski about the merits of nuclear energy. What ended up backing up all of these renewables? Well, it's going to be gas. Well, let's talk about Germany and blackouts first. Yeah, Okay. The Germans don't do blackouts. Yeah, that's not <laughs> what the Germans do. Um, other countries may do blackouts. Um, Germany doesn't. Ha having said that, they've had two very weird giant drops in current uh, in, in uh, electricity frequency on their grid recently. So frequency is one of, is if you have to if you're if you're having a little crisis on your grid and you have to let something slip up. Frequency is the thing that you can let slip up that does the least damage to your equipment and to your consumers. Um, more damage than that is if you if you vary the uh, voltage, um, and also more damage if you. <laughs> so if you if you don't have enough energy, it's easier to let the frequency take the hit rather than the voltage because a lot of things on your grid, a lot of the operation of your equipment depends on that on that uh, voltage. Now. If the frequency dips too much or for too long, there are automatic shut shutoffs built into the system. In Texas, the big reveal during the hearings in the state legislature after the blackouts is that the Texas grid came within a matter of minutes of the auto shutoffs hitting their biggest power plants 
because the grid frequency was too low. What's physically experienced in the big power plants when this frequency on the grid goes low, that the power, that the big spinning, heavy, heavy, heavy spinning generators are physically connected to, when that frequency drops, it, it drags on the generators, which are designed to spin at very certain speeds. And if that drag happens too long, they shut off for their own protection because if they drag too long and they're damaged or knocked out of service, then that power plant will not be there to help restart the grid when whatever was immediately causing the imbalance between supply and demand passes. So Germany has had two weird frequency events in the last few months, one in the last few days. But I got to tell you, weird frequency events do not really make the news. They are discussed by the highly technical people. They are discussed with probably a great deal of concern by grid operators. And if Germany has to have a lot more gas plants fire up, and they're going to do that because, like I said, Germany doesn't really do blackouts. Now, I may eat my words soon. Mm -hmm. Germany is playing an extremely dangerous game of chicken with nature, just like much of Europe is doing in trying to hook up its bulk manufacturing and consume consumption in households and businesses to weather patterns. However, they've been more successful than other countries at, at supporting their grid. They just have a few trade-offs. One of those trade-offs is that they've got the highest costs in Europe mm -hmm. for electricity. Now, they subs ah, subsidy is a weird word. They excuse German industries from paying from a lot of those costs. So the thinking is, um, better to make consumers turn down the heat, turn off the lights and shiver at home while keeping them uh, working on the job during the day. Right. It's a very it's a very realistic logic. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really boost the German economy. It doesn't keep the jobs going that much if Germans um, consume more at home, but they lose their they lose their factory. Right. Right. So the idea is that you tighten the belt. You sacrifice for the common good, but you keep the job and you keep the pay and you keep the currency and you keep the vacations to cheap Greece, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So that's another part of the German system, this intergiven that's very disciplined, making German, uh, you know, households cut back and, but keeping them employed. Gotcha. The other thing that Germany's done, which is what you uh, open this conversation with is Gas. Germany has more fossil fuel power plant capacity installed today than it did at the time of Fukushima. And it has more uh, fossil fuel capacity installed today than it did 20 years ago at the start of the big build out of renewables. That's amazing. So that's between oil plants to, to burn liquid fuel. It's always the backstop ultra emergency system because it's, you know, dirty reciprocating engines and, and dual fuel turbines that can burn both uh, diesel or oil or um, natural gas in the same mm -hmm. device. Those have been around since the beginning of electricity. The very first generators on the grid were, were um, petroleum liquids fueled in Manhattan by Edison, right? So all the way till now, that's the cheap to construct very expensive to run, very dirty to run thing that backstops really intense, high frequent or highly uh, rapid events that cause you to need sudden demand. Then they've got more gas capacity than they did in the past. 
the idea is this, because a natural gas plant that is new operating at, a, at its highest efficiency can be less than half the emissions than a coal plant operating at its most efficient set point. The argument goes that gas will help us decarbonize. Now, depending on the way your, your grid is configured today, this can be true. The US has done a very large amount of decarbonization quite quickly by substituting natural gas for coal. Right, this was, is this Obama's legacy of shifting us over that? I mean, I know we were sort of on trend to do that, but it seems like part of his energy independence idea was to expand that, correct? Or am I sure. wrong? Sure, I mean, and you know, there, there were big oil and gas folks like T. Boone Pickens who pushed hard for a wind turbine backed by natural gas system, which totally. is indeed marginally cleaner than a coal natural gas and no wind turbine system. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly never going to be as clean as France's almost entirely nuclear plus some hydro system. But uh, it, seems like an, it seems like an adjacent possible. One of the effects of restructuring the electricity markets in the United States were to cause a great deal of flexibility and getting a rush of money to build the latest new toy. Like that was the, that was the logic. If the latest new toy is cheaper, cleaner gas to replace dirty, slow, expensive coal, then if you restructure the electricity markets to cause the losers who invested in the past technology to just lose their shirt, go bankrupt and exit, then the new guys would bring in the new toys and would build them rapidly and would be the new winners. That was the idea. And, and consumers would reap the benefit because they wouldn't have to pay for the losses incurred by the no longer uh, needed coal plants, right? right. That was we, the ideal behind right. the economists' arguments to make a restructured electricity In market. typical American fashion, to juxtapose it with what we were talking about earlier in terms of the difference of uh, capitalist traditions within Germany and America is America became interested in harnessing, its, it thought at least, the power of structured competition to advantage the consumer and the environment in the long run. That's how right. they were selling it anyway. That's not totally what happens, but. Right, and it, if it, it, it turns out if the new toys end up bad and they break the grid, whose fault is that? Well, in the end, the consumers take it in the, in the chin. Anyway, that's what happened in Texas where yeah. the new system worked until it didn't. It saved money until it didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. So in Germany, they are much more conservative and much more careful. Technically, um, there, you know, there is a wholesale electricity market, but Germany does not allow the wholesale market to function quite right. And I, I think I might take a moment to explain why that is, because although it's a little off the beaten path there, it's itself a very interesting story of German conservatism supporting conservative energy choices like natural gas, full, um, and ultimately nuclear, except that it's phasing out nuclear. Those things stay on the grid more than they might otherwise because mm -hmm. of uh, something I'm going to mention. The way electricity auctions and electricity markets are supposed to work is that the need for electricity in one area should be reflected by the price of wholesale electricity in that area. What Germany does is that they have the entire nation have a single price point for, um, the, the, from the north with few people and little industry and surrounded by windy uh, Denmark 
all the way to the south with almost no wind, tons of industry, and um, lots of salt. So you have very different energy demands and flows happening. But this isn't reflected by, say, a high price for wholesale electricity in the south when it's dark and it's windy in the north and there's not actually enough electricity wires to carry the power down south. Instead, they artificially have decided just one price region. I mean, the whole thing's artificial. Who are we joking, Emmett? But they've decided a single price is the way to get fairness so that you don't have people in one part of the country paying a widely uh, different price of electricity compared to another. They felt that it was better to handle the physical problems from this single price region that doesn't represent scarcity or demand north to south, rather than to have public outcry about suddenly dirt cheap electricity up north, but also immense investment needed down south to build power plants to send up the power when the wind stops blowing. Instead, everybody pays pretty much the same wholesale plus um, cost for delivered electricity in Germany. Right. So it's the U.S. Senate model of price. Yeah. You know what? I think that's a, I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. Um, and so that also means that if you're down south and the price for electricity says, oh, price of electricity is super cheap today because there's tons of wind. Well, there isn't wind down south, Emmett. Instead, you get, say, Austria saying, oh, wow, German electricity is super cheap. We'll just we'll take a bundle, right? But then they, they haven't had, a lot of times they haven't had the actual ability to deliver the wind down south. So they have to do what's called redispatch, where they send an out-of-market signal to uh, power plants down south and say, hey, we, we, we've sold, our price seems to be low, but we don't actually have electricity where the price is low. So we need you to fire up your fossil fuels to make up the difference, both for local consumers and for foreigners who are buying our electricity, Right. Now, they had to come down on Austria a few years back and give some traders a bunch of penalties because the Austrians were selling power that they couldn't even produce, that they were expecting to get delivered from Germany on two people in another country on the <laughs> other side of the border. And so they were just basically setting up a system where if for whatever reason, Germany had not been able to fire up their fossil to make sure they could deliver that power that was supposedly cheap because it was claimed to be wind power from northern Germany, they couldn't have actually delivered that. The Austrians wouldn't have had enough power to make up the sales that they had already sold to other European countries. You can see that we have a sort of Rube Goldberg machine, as you've described it in the past setup, where yeah. the dominoes could start to fall one after one. Grid separating, emergency operations. If those emergency operations aren't enough, start cutting people off the grid. If that isn't enough, grid collapse. So the European Union is claiming that they will have lots of power flowing from one country to another, but each country has to decide how much it's going to hedge for its own survival. So it doesn't, well, look, you've got Texas, right? And imagine Texas is like a Germany. Now the European grid is actually synced up better, but um, it's synced up in a way that the Texas grid isn't quite, but mm -hmm. there's a complication, which is Texas is part of the same nation as the rest of the United States. And Germany is not part of the same nation as its neighbors. Mm -hmm. So there's a weird difference in the levels of concern and how much hedging. And what Germany's effectively done is that they are hedging with gas and coal, both. 
that's what that large amount of power plants, you know, I've tried to figure out how on earth they have so many power plants operating when those same power plants would have gone bankrupt long ago. in maybe any other country in Europe or in, uh, in the US. So in the US, you have plants, you have coal in general is collapsing. Mm -hmm. Well, at least it was through 2020. There's a bit of a bounce back uh, being reported, but the coal plants were co collapsing and being shuttered sometimes a decade early because on average coal plants in the U S were only operating about 40% of the time or at 40% of the total max capacity of all of them were running full out in Germany. You had essentially no coal plants going offline, even though they're, they're black coal plants that is burning the black shiny rocks, the Santa gifts, uh, naughty kids who don't balance the grid for Christmas. Um, <laughs> Germany had its hard coal plants, about 22 gigawatts of them, operating last year at only 17% full out capacity. Meaning some coal plants operated a bit more and other coal plants, most of them were effectively off and they didn't go out of business. I think that's very interesting. It shows a lot of wisdom from the Germans, but it's also completely cursed considering the Germans and their energy vendor and their promotion of a carbon-free lifestyle for their neighbors. Right. And not just their neighbors, right? Other countries too, where they're just like, you know what you should do? You should build out a ton of turbines, which of course we happen to manufacture. And you should definitely start replacing some of those fossil fuels that stabilize you because it's really good for our manufacturing base. If you don't have something reliable and stable like fossil fuel or certainly no more stable than Germany expects itself to be in the future. <laughs> right. So yeah. I think, I think that's a good way to open up this, uh, a few little anecdotes, which is what do the Germans actually think about themselves? What mm -hmm. is it they think they are doing? So first of all, Energiebinde is very popular. It means good things and people like good things. When you see a survey and it says, is Energiebinde good? You say, well, I like that and I'm a good German and, and that's good for the world and it's good for the people. And so it's good. Okay. Then they get asked, do you think it's too expensive? Yep. Yeah. So the cheapest part of energy Vinda is done. The easiest part where wind turbines are built in such quantities that they rarely exceed the total demand in the whole country at one time. Now that means on average, they're only supplying, uh, you know, most of the time the turbines are only supplying about 20%. But it means that they almost never have to get curtailed. That is that their power is too much and gets cut artificially. Solar, boy, they're building tons of solar, but so far they've only built the solar that really takes a chunk out of that demand. They haven't built so much solar that solar is powering 100% of their society on a really sunny day, but they are getting very close. What's painful about exceeding that point is that suddenly every new solar panel that gets added to the country has very little marginal value, very little worth, very little return for its owners, um, and a lot of wasted power. So they've done the easy part, not the hard part. Admittedly, they did a lot of the easy part when the easy part was hard to do. And now they're about to do the hard part when the hard part is, so people claim, easy to do, as long as your solar panels come from a properly cheap manufacturing source shall we say. They're not really made in Germany anymore because it's too, electricity is too expensive. <laughs> anyway, so in Germany, the elites and the public say that Energiewende is good. It just costs too much. 
and it's going too slowly. Well, Emmett, it's only going too slowly if you think you don't want the nuclear gone, which brings us to some very confusing new information that I've just seen, which is a survey conducted of Germans this year, about a month ago, on what year they think the country's nuclear plants are going to turn off. Turns out 10% of the country thinks the nuclear plants are off already. It turns out almost 50% of the country thinks the nuclear plants are not turning off till 2030 or after. And this, this is by definition the same, has to be overlapping groups of the people who are overwhelmingly in favor of the energy vende, of this energy turnaround that's supposed to get rid of the nuclear and also then decarbonize a bit. Meaning people have no idea what they're actually talking about. They don't know what's going on and they believe in it, but they're opposed to its results. Right. This sort of reminds me of how uh, there were just the worst people in the world getting killer book deals like Thomas Friedman when we were in the glory days of globalization. And everybody was like, I'm for it. Sounds great. Just globalize everything. And then coronavirus came around and suddenly Larry Summers is like, hey, how come we can't even make masks in our own country anymore? And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> you might have thought how to about make that. Masks. It's not that he, he, knows knows how. he knows how to abstract making masks into a generic thing that's interchangeable with any other thing. Yeah. It's all capital, labor and inputs, right? It's just like uh, it's yeah. all heterogeneous or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this feels similarly. Yeah. So here's another thing I've started. I've, I've walked around a lot of German cities and towns and it's fun to start a little conversation about what people think about energy and nuclear and renewables. What I found is that some elite Germans are starting to say Germany has already done its part for Europe. It's leadership, it's moral leadership in talking about clean energy and investing in some clean energy when it was expensive should justify a German, uh, shall we say, self-maintenance phase where maybe they don't reduce the emissions that much and instead they just are good citizens of the world by manufacturing the equipment and keeping the power supplies on that will be useful for manufacturing that equipment, which may not be the same power as comes from that equipment. To wit, I've heard German policymakers argue that Germany, being only a few percentage points of global emissions, has too important a role to play in the world to be too caught up on whether it reduces its emissions any further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you're starting to see is a, is a talking point, a grievance-based, uh, martyrdom-based talking point that's set up to justify what's about to physically occur with the arrival of Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Exactly. So there was a Nord Stream 1, and now there's a Nord Stream 2. billion cubic meters of natural gas per year. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And now there's Nord Stream 2. So another 55 billion cubic meters per year of natural gas. Right, exactly. So what are the pertinence we need to know about Nord Stream 2? Qui bono? Who benefits from this? Why is it necessary? Well, it's technically a really good, simple bit of kit that just uh, takes gas from where it's made and sends it to where it's needed. Very logical. Um, in, a, in, a, in a particularly pungent bit of historical irony, the Nord Stream pipelines come ashore at the same town 
that was supposed to be the biggest nuclear plant in the world in East Germany, built by the Soviet Union for for the uh, German Democratic Republic. <laughs> and instead, once the wall fell, they stopped construction, stripped out all the reactors, and it then became the um, importation point for Russian natural gas instead. So let's think about that. You had what was seen to be a client state of the Soviet Union getting dependent on Soviet technology, building a dangerous um, uh, uranium supply chain dependent power source, right? And instead, you're replacing it with what? Well, you're replacing it with an absolutely and utterly dependent supply source that if even hinted at being turned down, turned off, serviced at the wrong time on the Russian side would lead to an absolute panic and energy crisis within minutes in, in, in Germany on the other end. That was the replacement. Replace implied control with actual literal control from Russia of German policy by the fact that if those gas pipelines go down at the wrong time, if Germany's already depending on it, Germany will have to do anything to get that pipeline restored. And let's just be frank, Germany doesn't have guns. Mm -hmm. They have money and they have leadership of Europe. Those are the two things they can offer to restore gas flow if there's a problem. So we have this interesting thing going on where I've said this somewhere else and I think it's worth noting this gas pipeline will be life and death infrastructure for Germany. Because it's life and death infrastructure for Germany, even a hint or a suggestion that there might be a problem with it will be sufficient to induce rethinking in Germany one way or another about policy objectives and about response to various other, other situations in the world. Let's say Russia has what it sees and its people see as unfinished business in Ukraine. I'm not trying to get in the middle of that. All I'm saying is that at the moment, Germany and Europe is dependent on gas pipelines coming in through countries like Ukraine. Nord Stream 2 gets around that. Well, it gets around that um, if Germany is trying to actually replace power with the natural gas. Like if they're That's supposedly what I'm saying. going yeah. to replace coal or replace nuclear, then yes. If it's merely additional and Germany's just passing it on, then I guess Germany can decide to cancel its commercial contracts with the rest of Europe and just say, hey, no gas today. Um, the Russians aren't sending any because we're, we're uh, standing up against something that's happening. And you no, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Ukraine, I love you. I'm sure Germans like Ukrainians and whatever. Certainly Germans had a lot of fascinating experiences running through Ukraine and uh 1940, but I don't think Germans are actually going to sacrifice for Ukrainians. I just don't think that that's the direction of sacrifice in the German Ukrainian relationship historically. Mm -hmm. Instead, yeah, so Germany will be well behaved like an extremely well behaved dog that knows if you see a dog pulling on a leash, you know that that dog has not been trained, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean the dog is going to win the battle. Doesn't mean the dog is going to get to walk where it wants. It means it's not trained well. Germany is a very orderly people. They, you, we should expect that when Nord Stream 2 gets built and other sources of gas either turn off or are rerouted and Germany gets nice and hooked, it shouldn't take long because they're turning off their nuclear plants and they're going to need to replace it with something. 
then Germany is not going to pull at the leash. That's not Germany's nature. Pull at the leash. No, no. And it puts the United States in a weird position, which we see reflected in the kind of confounding decision that's just been made or is in the process of being made by the Biden administration about what to do with Nord Stream. So uh, the U.S. has not had the best relationship with uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. Obviously, the last four years were another bizarre return to Cold War rhetoric. And we there is international friction there. So then it has to consider Germany, an ally. What are you going to do with Germany? Germany needs this to happen. At the same time, you understand what this is going to do to Ukraine. And at the same time, you have your own geopolitical like garage match that we've been playing for fucking decades with the Russians. So I, don't, I don't know what your position is on a giant American army and air force bases in Germany, but this may be just the thing that cures it. If you want to gone, I don't know whether you think they should be there or not. I don't know if you think that's a good use of American wealth or, or a good example of American influence in the world. It's obviously improper for our bases in Germany to keep existing if Nord Stream 2 is the way that Germany gets its energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I just want to say that this is why we have this sort of uh, confusing decision where on the one hand, it seems like the United States is saying, we're sanctioning all ships that are going to be involved with handling the logistics of the construction of Nord Stream 2. On the other hand, it's saying, we're not going to sanction the company that's Isn't going that the to actually build of what's, it. Is, is that the opposite? I think that's the opposite of what they're saying. But is it? Either, it's one word or the other. The confusing thing is, I think that honestly, the Biden administration itself is probably confused because look, Germany can actually say to very sympathetic, sympathetic ears in the Biden administration, look, we'd love to join you in emissions reductions, but we really need this natural gas to replace coal. Whereas what they can say to other people is, look, we're not, we can shut off our nuclear plants. We can just replace it with natural gas. Yeah. And admittedly, only 20% of Nord Stream 2 is going to be required to replace the young and excellent and high-functioning German nuclear fleet with Russian gas. They'll only mm -hmm. need 20%. The other 80% can go to extracurriculars, like selling it on to Europe and getting them hooked onto the same leash. Um, you know, two dogs can walk one lead, right? Yeah. It's not impossible. We see it all the time in fancy cities. You can also uh, see that Germany may decide that its electricity is so expensive, it's better to get its industry disconnected from the grid. Now, there are a lot of industrial operations that have been disconnecting from the grid in Germany. One of the ways to do it is that as long as you have a little private power plant of under 30 megawatts, you're not required to submit to a lot of the regulations and a lot of the policies that constrain larger power plants. So there have been there was a, a great boom in German 29.9 megawatt uh, small power units for, you could use all the buzzwords people like, for microgrids, distributed energy, <laughs> powered by fossil fuels. The German private electricity supply is significantly dirty per kilowatt hour than the public supply because of this sort of defection from the grid of companies just saying to heck with it, we are not going to be a part of a grid that feels this insecure. Which leads us to something interesting. What have German manufacturers and German industry groups uh, like energy industry groups been saying about the energy vendor. Well, one, they have put out a notice that if the, with the EU 
clean investment criteria that's currently being decided this year does not include fossil fuels like natural gas, then there should be no energy. There, there, there can't be any um, clean investment criteria that you've got to include fossil fuels as a clean investment because that's the only option left for in the view of the German energy industry and manufacturers to keep the grid stable. Two, there have been proposals, for example, from, I saw one from the Union of Metallurgical Companies, uh, the, metal, the metal sector in Germany saying that there should be a pan-European industrial price because it's not fair that other countries have cheaper <laughs> and cleaner power than Germany does. Yeah, yeah, fuck They you, won't France. be able to compete. But they say that's a problem because we have the better factories that we're only being disadvantaged by bad energy. So we can't have our business going to the other European countries just because they have better, cheaper, cleaner, and more reliable electricity supplies in the future. That's mm -hmm. a hell of a thing to hear from your manufacturing sector, one of your key manufacturing sectors. Um, what, I mean, look, the, the pharmaceuticals, the chemical industries, they've been saying for a long time, look, we need, now people can say they're just crying wolf. They're never going to leave. They're going to be staying in Germany. Their workers want to stay in Germany. Have you actually tried to get, you know, non-Germans to work at, at German levels of efficiency and accuracy? It's just hard to conceive how a good German company would leave. But here's what I predict. I predict that if that was an actual danger, we would see pretty rapid step back to that, to that, I don't know if protectionist is the right word, but that policy position that I've heard expressed multiple times behind closed doors, which is that we've done our part. Really, it's our job to lead from manufacturing rather than from emissions reductions in the future. Mm -hmm. That's what I suspect we'll see. Now, Germany has also been interfering with efforts to get zero emission nuclear energy included as zero emission. So they are, the Germans are trying to get nuclear blocked from new investment because they say accurately, it will be hard for us to compete if other people just have clean electricity all the time. So we, sh and, and also from a moral position, I can see the German point of view, if they are paying for a lot of the budget of this pan-European investment that's gonna go into coronavirus recovery, and they don't have any businesses that can make money off of nuclear investment. They don't want to see German capital going just to support the clean, low carbon, cheap uh, lifetime job lifestyle of those profligate countries that are going to choose nuclear. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's like um, Greece is one thing because they they are perceived as not really working hard. But even worse is if German money was going to support good jobs in competing nations. And sure enough. Russia is ready, is capable and ready to build nuclear in any country that wants to go for that. And they're capable of selling gas to any country that wants to strip out nuclear. It's, uh, it's uh, one heck of a one-two punch. To give you a sense of Europe's priorities, Gazprom is about 10, bigger, 10 times bigger by revenue than uh, Rosatom is. Mm -hmm. Jesus, and Rosatom's not small. I mean, they've got the most number of nuclear deals in, in the world. Most nuclear plant projects in the whole world um, being built by one country for another country are Russia. Mm -hmm. Russia's building in Russia. Russia's building in Iran. Russia's building in India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Egypt, China. They're still building in China. Really? Uh, Russia's building in Ukraine about to build in Finland and Hungary and Bulgaria 
and they're in talks with a bunch of other countries to potentially build. Um, for example, in well, they were in the running for uh, Czechia's new nuclear plant, but there's some bad blood from that ammo dump that got blown up. But so they're going to figure <laughs> that whole thing out um, among themselves, I'm sure. At the moment, the Czechs are very angry, and they've said that the Russians can't bid for the project. But we'll see how long that lasts once yeah, they get the bids in. And I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to beat the Rose Adam price tag, honestly. They're so damn good. Well, at look, the Koreans make a damn fine nuclear plant, or they did, and they're going to build on the Czech plant. And you might think that that means you don't need the Russian bid. The problem is the head of state in Korea says that Korean reactors are garbage and are no good for Koreans. They're for foreigners. And in the end, that starts to have a deleterious effect on your ability to deliver a product. <laughs> it really does. You know, management gets the management hears your aggressive and ambitious uh, engineers and managers at every level hear that your product's no good for your own people. It's just for foreigners. And you start kind of losing capabilities and it starts to get weird. You start to end up more looking like the... Um, some of the European countries that stopped building at home, but insisted that their product was good enough to export. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it breeds a really uh, lax dysfunctional culture within the industry because no one can take pride in what they do. And so who are you going to have that hangs around in an industry where no one can really feel like they can take pride in it. You're going to have dead enders and you're going to also have uh, true believers that want to hang there but can't meet their full potential. So I walk into the offices a few years ago of the, of the German Atomic Industrial Forum, like mm -hmm. the German trade industry for nuclear. And they have offices in a lovely little corner of Berlin. And I walk in and the wattage has, has dimmed visibly, like you know, most of the lights were off to save electricity. You know, it's really expensive electricity now that not much of it is cheap nuclear. In Germany, it's nuclear is the cheapest way to make electricity in Germany because they don't have their own gas supplies. Um, and even their coal mining is more expensive than their nuclear because their nuclear plants run so well. But anyway, so you walk in, they're saving electricity. The conference rooms are nearly empty. They say, yeah, we downsized. Um, you know, you, you have a meeting and you get these kind of, middle-aged folks who say, you know, all my peers are gone. They've gone to Switzerland. They've gone to France. They've gone to Sweden. They've gone to the Netherlands. And I say, why haven't you gone? And I, I swear to you, Emmett, that response was somebody has to stay and see an orderly closure through. Yeah. Somebody has to turn the lights off when we close up shop. Somebody has to turn the lights off and let Germany just be powered by Russian natural gas. And it was, you say dead ender, boy, that was a, that was a real downer. Now there was a little bit more spirit when I went back a second time, uh, uh, two years later, and they said, Hey, you know, we've got this issue. We thought that when German anti-nuclear folks said they didn't want nuclear energy, they meant just nuclear energy, but now they're coming for all our other nuclear related facilities. For example, our nuclear services for the other European countries, our nuclear medicine, they're, they're attacking everything. And I just had to explain to them that nobody hating on nuclear plants ever actually hates the, like the nuclear plants, qua nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. They're running off of an apocalypse vision, a movie playing out in their own head of their own lives passing in a world ending event in their own time. And they see everything they do in nuclear through that lens. 
Nuclear plants. Oh, they're going to kill us all. Now nah, you're thinking about nuclear war. Nuclear waste is going to kill us all. Mm, you're still thinking about nuclear war, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, heck, I've had this apocalyptic vision get expressed even for nuclear medicine. For nuclear medicine. Yeah, like Only chemo. the most committed people even know that nuclear medicine exists in the anti-nuclear campaigners. Um, and I've still heard it expressed as this bad thing that's going to kill us, right? But anyway, so the German Atomic Industrial Forum has realized that people are coming for them even after their plants close. That that's not good enough. Because it was never about the plants, Emmett. It's about returning to a vision of nature under the shadow of an atomic bomb going off. Like that's the, that's the fear, that's the stick and carrot um, of the German anti-nuclear vision. And it's just incredible that even in 2021, they can't run away from it. No, I mean, we have, we have similar folks here, right? So this is what's at stake with Nord Stream. This is how we see it playing out, how Mark has analyzed it, and why this is a way bigger story than what a lot of people are going to give adequate and thoughtful attention to, which is why we wanted to take time to talk about it today. Um, domestically in America, we've also got some forecasts for what's going to happen to our grid. So I thought we could close the show out with talking about a utility dive piece that came out about what NERC, the North American Energy Reliability Council, is saying about uh, certain regions of the country going into their summer. Yeah, so um, I will be able to link it back to Germany just a little bit. You can't escape the continent that easy. <laughs> so it turns out that California's electricity reliability in the, in the extreme cases was dependent on imports from other states. We may have known that for some time, but, it, but what happens now is that Arizona finds out that its, its plans kind of rely on other states not doing what Arizona's doing. Colorado's plans kind of rely on other states not doing what Colorado's doing. Oregon, Washington, everybody's linked up saying, well, we analyze and our grid should be fine with just a little help from our friends. But all the friends are saying that. And all the friends suffer drought at the same time now. And all the friends suffer the same heat waves at the same time now. Right. This is a when like the, um... a lot of the commercial, a lot of the commercial and financial and policy work in renewables assumes that somebody else will hold the bag when renewables go to zero. Because as any person worth their salt in the renewables industry said loudly and clearly after Texas, you can't blame us for the blackouts because everyone knows renewables will always fail you down to zero all the time because that's our main sale selling point. Mm -hmm. So. That's what they all said. Our selling point is that they go to zero. Um, and that means it's not our fault when there's a problem because you know that we aren't reliable. But the issue is that each state is going to build their energy program on that at the same time under the same weather condition. And what NERC said is that it looks like there's not enough. Mm -hmm. This It reminds me of uh, when we talked to Meredith Angwin and she was describing what happens in New England when that ISO is like, oh, we'll just buy from Canada in the dead of winter. And it's like, yeah, they're not going to sell you shit. They need it. Hold <laughs> up. Hold up. Depends. It turns out that Quebec is seeing itself as the answer for everybody's power, even when it doesn't have any extra in the dead of winter. The way you work this out is that you um, find out people 
first of all, you got to figure out who's willing to buy with the with uh, the contract, this fine print that says that really just if there's enough. Then you got to figure out um, who's willing to pay the most in emergencies. Mm. Then you've got to figure out who can legally be cut off. There's all these ways to work it to where um, I'm, I guess I'm not saying they're definitely going to be caught out selling the same megawatt a bunch of different times. But what was clear from the te- from the uh, California blackouts last year is that California was the last one to show up at the trough needing power. Mm-hmm. And there just literally wasn't any. Yeah, there wasn't any. There wasn't any that could be found at pretty much any cost. And uh, it'll be interesting to see, one, whether New England ISO is, or New York ISO is actually going to be able to build the transmission lines to bring down the Quebec Hydro. And two, whether anybody's going to notice that Quebec is supposedly going to be the source of energy for a lot of different places, but doesn't have any extra in the winter in peak events, which is exactly the time that the life or death um, situations arise. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, like... and another thing, what is a long distance high voltage line supposed to be bringing fundamental life-saving power in from far away, what is it other than the electricity equivalent of a big pipeline like the Colonial Pipeline that just shut down for a few days last week? So people who think that they're going to make a grid where the numbers work out because you bring in a huge chunk of reliable power from very far away from a different political constituency, this is very dangerous thinking because that other political constituency may be doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No one is viewing this. I would say no one in the, especially the renewables campus review, actually viewing these things as interconnected. Or they are, but they're making a game out of it and they're using it to show that if they can get past peer review, that's the same thing as it physically working out in the real world where there Mm -hmm. are risks and there are no backseas. Yep, absolutely. So do we have any closing thoughts, Mark? This does. This really does feel a why nothing feels possible episode. Um, so I'm glad you. I'm glad you came by. Yeah, I have some closing thoughts about Germany. Um, Germany's gonna find a way to survive. Oh, totally. Yeah, they're gonna find a way to stay strong. They're gonna find a way to stay productive, and that's a given. That's an absolute. There may just be a lot of things that break, and a lot of things that hurt, and a lot of things that go wrong. Um, for other folks in Germany making it uh, making it through any crisis. So I think that's what's to be carefully considered when trying to respond to Germany from, uh, as an American policymaker or even at the European level. That right. Germany will do what it takes for Germany to survive. And as Germany weakens itself, that's not something to be, I don't think that's something to be celebrated Like Mm -hmm. it's not, you can't look at Germany and say, oh, they're weakening themselves. Now we'll get rich and Germans will accept being less rich. I don't think that's the way this game works. Now, I I could be mistaken. They could be sleepwalking into um, some fairly catastrophic reductions in quality of life. But I doubt it. I doubt it. I think the Germans are keeping their power plants open despite not having any business for them, for many of them right now, because they intend to survive. And they intend to get that gas pipeline. And if that means they have to alter their behavior to keep the gas flowing, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. They're going to do it. Yep. And I think that we should react accordingly and that Europe should react accordingly. That Germany is going to do what's right for Germany, even when it's very bad for the rest of Europe. We just have to be ready for it. 
Oh, so, and the, like the whole car, climate crisis thing. Forget that. That's like, uh, there are no climate hawks in a blackout. So yeah, not just forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to clarify, when you say Europe and the United States should act accordingly in your mind, what would that mean? It's always easy to speculate without the power in your own hands. Right. True. But, and um, also without all the information. Right. So we can bracket that. We can have the caveats. Yeah. I think the way I would do it if I were in the driver's seat of American policymaking, you know, just speaking yeah. out of turn here, Emmett, I think that you got a deal that basically says um, you better keep all your nuclear plants. Mm -hmm. Maybe should even open some of the recently closed ones or put in place a plan to finance Poland's nuclear plants. And you better not block, you better not block the clean finance um, of nuclear in Europe. Mm -hmm. it, through the through the green tax, so-called green taxonomy, um, or we will absolutely not just block a Nord Stream two. We will completely depart Germany, com like completely and totally depart uh, armed force presence in Germany, even while blocking Nord Stream two. Mm -hmm. I think that would be the way to do it. Not that it's acceptable to throw Eastern Europe under the bus, but if you're going to throw Eastern Europe under the bus like that with Nord Stream 2, the very least you could do is finance their Russian-built nuclear plants. Right. Right. And as far as what the European response should be, what would, what would act accordingly mean? Oh, generally? every single one of them needs to do whatever it takes to block Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. This is different for them. We're sitting over here in America. In the end, we're in a, we have a slightly different risk profile to what goes down in, in Europe. If you're in Italy, you'd better block that damn pipeline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to, to survive. France can be a little bit more self-interested potentially because not only do they have a nuclear fleet, they got a nuclear fleet, if you catch my drift. Yeah, um, yeah. So what France can do is basically say, we need the green taxonomy to include nuclear. We need to be put in charge of European defense because we can't trust, you know, Germany at all. And by put in charge, <laughs> it doesn't mean you get access to any of our shit. It just means we get extra funding from Europe in right. general for our private French nuclear and uh, conventional forces. And then they just need to leverage that up. Where gotcha. effectively France needs to protect Europe. Germany's selling it out. They should extract a chunk of flesh in exchange for any move towards completion from Nord Stream 2. Okay. Yeah, other European countries have relatively little to gain from France getting this. So I'm, that was France specific advice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We'll end it there. Thanks for coming by Mark. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Emmett. All right, everybody stay safe out there. We'll see you next week. Dribbling paddle and their useless boots.